0: Give it a shot. The Alexandria Times encourages all residents to get the COVID-19 vaccine when available to protect yourself and your community. We are currently in phases 1A and 1B of the vaccine availability. Visit the City of Alexandria website at www.alexandriava.gov to pre-register for the vaccine wait list. Hello, and welcome to Speakeasy. My name is Cody Mellocline. I'm the editor of the Alexandria Times, and I'm joined today by Brian Porter, the Commonwealth Attorney for the city of Alexandria. Um, Even if you don't know his his name or face, you're probably very well aware of the work he has done in the city. Uh, How's it going, Brian? Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for the invite, Cody. Uh, Things are going great. It's a beautiful day outside, and I'm looking forward to a really uh, good conversation with you.
0: Definitely. Couldn't ask for better weather today, finally. Um, But I think before we hop into a little bit about some of the work you've done in the city and your own personal story tied to Alexandria, I think it's important to get out of the way up front just exactly what it is that the Commonwealth's attorney does, because I think some people may not be as familiar with the role as, as others. So what does the Commonwealth's attorney do in the city of Alexandria?
1: Well, that's a that's a great question i i, I joke with my um my, my staff here in the office that if we went out on the front steps of the courthouse and i introduced myself to a hundred random people and introduced myself as the commonwealth's attorney probably only four or five would immediately know what my job is and that's that's because virginia uses archaic terminology uh, but if i told uh, you that i was the state's attorney or the district attorney i think a lot more recognition would start creeping across people's faces so Basically, I'm the elected prosecutor for the city of Alexandria. Um, uh, my office is in charge of all criminal investigations and prosecutions in the city. And unlike most states, um, the city of Alexandria is a completely independent political entity. Uh, we have no affiliation with any outside county. We're not a county seat or anything like that. So basically, I'm responsible for crime that occurs within the city limits.
0: You are, I think, out of the many, most people I've talked to on this show, you are probably one of the most thoroughly Alexandria people through and through. You were, it's, I, I believe you were born and raised in the city and you've basically spent the majority of your life here, right? That's correct. I, I was actually born in Alexandria Hospital, um, Okay. grew up in the
1: city. Uh, both of my parents were educators. Uh, my father was the principal at T.C. Williams for 25 years and then was an assistant superintendent and then later on was in charge of ACT for Alexandria and he still works um, part-time for the school system as an advisor to the superintendent. Uh, my mom was a teacher at Blessed Sacrament for 30 years uh, and both my brother and his wife and, and me and my wife, we still live in the city. So other than a few wayward years right after college, uh, I basically lived here my entire
0: life. Did you attend your father's school, the the school he was a principal? at?
1: Actually, I did. It's the only public high school uh, in Alexandria. And so um, uh, when I went to high school, uh, my parents did give me the option of going to private school if I wanted to. I think they were probably relieved when I told them that I did not want to, since all my friends were going (laughs) to public high school. And and the good news for me is uh, my dad was actually relatively well-liked for a principal, and I really didn't have any... Uh, difficulties as a result of uh, being the principal's son, which is probably surprising to many people, but it's definitely the way it went down.
0: <laughs> yeah. What was your I guess what what drove you to enter into law enforcement because I know you served as a police officer in the city prior to kind of joining this, the Commonwealth's attorney's office. What drove that your desire to kind of enter into this world of law enforcement?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. To some extent, the answer is kind of maybe lost to the ages a little bit. Um, sure. I, uh, I I know that I was interested in law uh, from a very early age, uh, but the desire to kind of get into law enforcement, I, I think it really happened, uh, really started um, in college. Uh, my father, um, in his position at, uh, as a principal, knew a significant number of uh, Alexandria police officers. And I remember uh, he arranged for me to go on a ride along one night uh, with an Alexandria police officer uh, who actually still works for the city. Robin Nichols. Uh, She's in the sheriff's Mm. office now. Um, And I I went out with her uh, and I really, really was impressed and enjoyed uh, that evening. Um, And I, I, I felt like it was a chance for me, probably if I could get into the Alexandria police department, uh, it was a chance for me to um, you know start working for the city and maybe give back a little bit to the community that gave me uh, so much growing up. So um, that that's kind of how it, it it initiated. Kind of took me a couple of years to get to the Alexandria uh, Police Department, but that was my goal uh, basically upon graduating from um, from college.
0: How long did you work on the force here? Mm.
1: So I started with the Metro Transit Police i actually worked for a very brief period uh prior to that in the general assembly i was uh, the legislative aide for um for a state uh delegate i believe she was a delegate at the time um and then i got a job uh i substitute taught for a little bit um and then i got a job with the metro transit police which is the uh, metro rail uh they have their own police department so i went through the metro transit police academy I graduated in a class of about fifteen of us, uh, two of whom, several of whom stay, two of whom are at the very top of that agency now, my 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 academy mates, one of them is the chief, and one of them is a the deputy chief. And I worked there for about two years give or take. Um, and then, uh, with the help of Alexandria's sheriff, uh, retiring sheriff, Dana Lawhorn, uh, who helped me uh, considerably in that time frame, uh, I finally was able to transfer over to the Alexandria Police Department. And then I spent approximately four years uh, with the Ogden Police Department while I was going to law school. I actually went to law school in the evenings and worked a midnight shift, which is definitely not. So oh, well. I, I don't I don't recommend that for anybody, but uh, <laughs> it did help in yeah. some ways.
0: What led you to decide to sort of transition out of that side of law enforcement and sort of more into the legal side of things as an attorney? Uh,
1: what happened was uh, as part of my um, uh, police career, I'm sorry, part of my law school career, um, I got an internship here in our office, uh, the Commonwealth Attorney's office, for credit, and obviously I've been exposed to the office and to some extent as a as a law enforcement officer, just bringing cases mm-hmm. and testifying. Um, and uh, it, just as an aside, I would point out that when I was in high school, uh, and jun- as a junior in high school, I actually got an internship in the Commonwealth Attorney's office, um, where I my job was to come down here and help update the files in criminal cases, um, which at that point involved something hmm. called a card catalog, which probably many of your listeners don't even uh, remember. <laughs> uh, so in any extent, I've been exposed to this office both as a, as a, as a student uh, in high school and then as a law student. Um, and it just became um, kind of like a, a natural progression in my career once I graduated from law school uh, I was lucky enough uh, to have my predecessor, Randy single, offer me a job. Uh, he was willing to hold it open uh, for a couple of months to see whether I passed the bar uh, and then when I did pass the bar, uh, it just seemed like a logical extension. I was smart enough to understand that if uh, if the Commonwealth's attorney was willing to keep a job open for me, I better explore that opportunity. And so I came over uh, and I went from being um, an officer on midnights on Friday night to being uh, a lawyer. In this office on Monday morning, uh, doing the traffic doc.
0: Outside of what your your time in the police department gave you just on a personal level, it must have that that experience must be sort of invaluable in a lot of ways for the work that you do now, just in terms of the perspective it gives you.
1: Sure. I, I mean, I think that's a, a very insightful point, and it's one with which I agree wholeheartedly. So one of the ways in which that experience helped me, uh, I think I've already touched on, and that is um, maybe counterintuitively to people that have not lived in that world, uh, it gave me a healthy respect for the advantages I had growing up, and mm-hmm. it helped me understand um, uh, that many people don't have those advantages. So um, if you'll indulge me, I'll give a real quick anecdote that kind of yeah. illustrates this. But uh, I remember very clearly being a, a police officer. Uh, I remember being called to uh, a, a domestic dispute. Um, mother and father, both intoxicated, probably on drugs. I can remember that they were very angry, they were screaming at each other. Uh, The apartment I was in was a mess. Uh, I can still picture it kind of internally, uh, very clearly, trash everywhere. Uh, And while these two people are intoxicated in a trash-strewn apartment and arguing with one another, they're totally oblivious to the fact that their toddler is crawling along the, the kitchen floor and I remember looking down and seeing the toddler crawling in uh, and, and, and a really uh, very, very deplorable conditions. And, and the worst part about it is, is that I can remember seeing uh, a cockroach like crawling on the kid. Um, mm. And I remember being struck by that, and I was struck in it, uh, by it in, in a couple of ways. One is I realized pretty quickly that that kid was going to have an awful lot of obstacles to overcome in order to become a, a, you know, a functioning adult and part of society. Uh, and I also realized uh, for once, uh, or for the first time, maybe, um, all of those advantages that I've already talked about, and it, it prompted me to go to my parents mm. the next day and thank them for providing such a, wow. a, a thriving and stable environment. So that's a long way of saying that um, that was the beginning of my education into understanding that all sorts of obstacles and all sorts of issues that human beings encounter can lead to antisocial behavior, And what I mean by that is, not everyone that comes before my office uh, is a hardened criminal. In fact, a very, very, very Mm -hmm. few are. Thank, thank goodness. And then, second part of that, my answer to your question is clearly it's helped me. Uh, One of the things that prosecutors do, huge part of our job, uh, which really doesn't get much, uh, uh, we don't get much credit for this in in the the TV, in the movies. uh, But an awful lot of our job is assessing criminal cases and figuring out where police officers. Uh, have done something incorrectly in the investigation of a case, whether that's getting a statement from someone who was uh, supposed to have their Miranda warnings read to them and, and, and instead did not have their Miranda warnings read to them, or perhaps a search was conducted where a search warrant was necessary. Uh, in my experience, we've got a very good police department here in Alexandria. The mistakes, are, if, if, if they do exist, are usually uh, just uh, simple young, young officers who don't really know exactly what they're supposed to do. It's a very complicated job. But it's our role to notice that and to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, that impacts the way we handle cases. If a case has got evidence that's tainted, we might have to drop it entirely. But part of our job is to instruct law enforcement officers and um, help, help them learn from their mistakes. And I've, I've done a lot of teaching. Uh, I've got almost a second career of teaching both citizens, lawyers, uh, law enforcement officers about, among other things, constitutional law and investigations, and in those classes where I am teaching law enforcement officers, uh, the fact that I can kind of speak their language a little bit and that they can't discount me as just another lawyer, you know, in a suit, uh, I think that's helped me uh, get across the, the points that I'm trying to make to them and to try to get them to understand and to buy into the need to respect the Constitution and Fourth and Fifth Amendment law.
0: Have you continued doing those classes um, during the pandemic or has that just not been a reality?
1: Well, it's interesting you asked that. Uh, For a long time, they were kind of on hold. We did one or two of them um, uh, through Zoom, Uh, but actually just earlier this week, I was out at the uh, the Northern Virginia Criminal Justice Academy teaching uh, Hmm. advanced constitutional law uh, to some experienced officers. So they've begun doing this, uh, still COVID uh, safe. People are separated, everyone's wearing a mask, but we are doing them in person, at least occasionally.
0: Yeah, the only, I guess the only reason I asked that is obviously because, over the last year, in terms of the conversation around policing and speci- obviously incited by incidents like George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor, have you felt like the conversations you've had with officers have changed at all in that regard? Just in terms of the work that you do specifically.
1: Um, well, it's a that's a another very good point. Uh, there has been a lot of change over the last 18 months yeah. in the Virginia criminal system. And some of that affects courtroom stuff, uh, and some of it affects police investigations. Sure. And what, what I have found um, is that uh, the, the, the police, of course, have to assimilate all of those changes. To some extent, they have to be police officers and lawyers a little bit on the street. They have to be conversant in Fourth Amendment analysis and and how Mm -hmm. to handle uh, searches and seizures and interviews. I've seen an awful lot of uh, willingness to adapt. I've seen an awful lot of wanting to understand. Uh, When I taught on Tuesday, I got a a whole slew of very incisive questions. and, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for the entire country, obviously. My, sure. my, uh, I mean, I've taught all over the country, but really my experience is, is, is focused on Virginia and then specifically northern Virginia. Uh, but I, I, I feel like the, the, the general um, consensus that I've, I've heard from law enforcement officers I'm teaching is, hey, look, we want a clear set of rules. Tell us what the rules are and teach us, uh, and then we're willing to follow them. Uh, so I, I do think the, the conversations changed a little bit. Uh, I think all of the uh, attention that has been drawn to law enforcement uh, because of events that have occurred, uh, terrible events in, in some cases that have occurred in the country has caused a lot of introspection and has caused uh, law enforcement leaders to question, um, you know, how we can change the paradigm a little bit. And uh, I think it's, it, I, I've told several people, this several community groups, Those conversations about changing are going uh, on in our world. Uh, I think a whole lot of change has occurred. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that it's quick enough for everyone's taste, and I'm not saying that we've accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. Uh, But I do think the amount of public attention and concern that has been brought uh, on the paradigm of policing uh, and criminal investigations and prosecutions uh, is causing an awful lot of conversations and a significant amount of change.
0: Now I know you you ran for Commonwealth's attorney in twenty thirteen. That was the first time. The first time you ran. What made you decide to run for office? There must have been a lot of considerations you made when making that decision.
1: Sure, it's, that's a that's a tough decision. Um, so, uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, I had always been interested in politics. Um, mm-hmm. I was interested in politics in high school. Uh, I majored in political science uh, as an undergrad. I both interned in the General Assembly. At undergrad, I, was, I went to school in Richmond, and then, I, uh, then I, I worked in the General Assembly when I got out. Uh, also, obviously, i have been in, in, interested in law from a very young age. Uh, I remember I, I won a law, well, I came in third place, I should say. I uh, came in third place at a law day, um a contest at the lyceum when i was in third grade mm. uh and i wrote i remember i drew a poster and basically it was a, a lawyer and it said lawyers help on it so somehow at a very early age i was already interested in the legal profession yeah. and it, it's funny when you think about it I, I don't know if that's you know because i won a law a. A uh, competition, or when I was in ninth and third grade, that I decided that I was going to become a lawyer, or if there's some kind of destiny involved, I'll, I'll never know the answer to that. But but I clearly was involved in it and in, in, in interested in that at a very early age, and so, to some extent, running for office in my hometown married those two significant interests. Um, and also, uh, I was encouraged by my predecessor, uh, Randy single uh, He he seemed to think that uh, I had uh, the necessary qualities. Uh, I felt like the, the the career I had chosen uh, was one that 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 um, you know uh, highlighted my strengths and helped uh, uh, helped help hide my very many uh, deficiencies. <laughs> and so I, I felt like it was the again a logical extension of my career. I'd been in the office for 12 years and I decided that it was the right call after consultation with my wife and I decided to run.
0: Yeah, and obviously you've served you've served Alexandria in that capacity since then. I, I would ask you what you feel like the cases, what cases have defined your time in office. But I have a feeling I know sort of know the answer. I think a lot of people probably have a sense of that answer. And that, that sort of brings us to your involvement in the Charles Severance case, uh, which you have have literally written the book on. <laughs> um, talk me through sort of what that case was like, because as I understand it, it came very early in your time as a commonwealth's attorney.
1: Sure. So, I mean, there, there's no doubt. I, I've had, you know, at this point in my career, I've I've been involved in something like 50 or 60 different homicides, and, and each one of them I, I can remember. I mean, I might not be able to recite every single case name, but I bet you if I sat down and really thought about it, uh, I, I know I've been impacted by all of them and by the victims who were left behind. But there's no doubt that the, that the Severance case um, is uh, the most serious, the most complex investigation that I've participated in. Uh, it was the longest and most uh, complex trial, and, and, and definitely the case— Uh, in my career that most uh, most uh, potently impacted the Alexandria Mm -hmm. uh, community, because for a time there, everyone was terrified to answer a knock at the door. And um, so what it was like, well, the timing was uh, a real significant issue um, for me. Uh, I got elected in November of 2013 Uh, I went on vacation uh, the week after. My wife and I went uh, to Grenada and got on a sailboat. We were learning how to sail at the time, and we were sailing around the Caribbean. And when we got back uh, and we're getting ready, um, you know, spent a couple of nights in a hotel before we got on a plane back up here, uh, I learned from the internet that uh, we'd had a very terrible murder, and Ronald Kirby had been murdered while I was actually out of the country. Um, And I didn't know much about it. I got back in um, the no, you know, middle of November, <clears throat> met with the detectives, uh, one of whom, by the way, uh, was Sean Casey, uh, who is currently running for sheriff to replace um, uh, Dana Lawhorn. And, um, and, you know, we didn't really have any leads. It was just kind of a very, very mysterious uh, ambush murder at the front door of Mr. Kirby's home. Uh, so then I took office in January. Um, and in February... Uh, February 6th uh, was the date that Ruth Ann Lodato was murdered uh, at her home, um, and um, I remember that day very clearly. Uh, I had, uh, uh, in December, I had tried a case uh, involving an off-duty Arlington uh, police, de- I'm sorry, Arlington Sheriff's deputy uh, who had shot and killed uh, a citizen in the Lynn Haven neighborhood here in Alexandria, and that case got a lot of media attention uh, because it was uh, a law enforcement officer who was uh, his defense was that he was trying to, even though he was off-duty, he was trying to arrest uh, the person that he ended up shooting and killing. And anyway, the the sentencing for that case uh, was the same day as uh, Ruth Ann's murder. And so um, uh, I, I, we finished the sentencing in front of a judge. Uh, I thought at that point I had uh, just done one of the most uh, media uh, conscious cases that I probably ever was going to do. The courtroom was packed with reporters who were interested in the sentence that the mm. deputy was going to receive. He was, he was convicted of manslaughter. and um, Anyway, uh, I had no idea about the, the tempest I was about to step into. And so when that sentencing was done, um, as I was preparing to walk out of the courtroom, a, a sheriff's deputy, Alexandria deputy, working in the courtroom, came up to me, and she told me that there had been another shooting uh, in the Rosemont or Del Rey neighborhood. Uh, it turned out actually to be Northridge, I believe, if you've lived here your entire life. But in any event, uh, I ran downstairs, I got into uh, my car and I drove up to the crime scene and I I drove right into probably, hopefully, uh, the most serious case that I would ever um, encounter in my career. And uh, I'll be honest, uh, that happened one month into my first term as the elected and I just was not prepared. I wasn't prepared for Mm -hmm. uh, the media scrutiny. Uh, we pretty quickly had uh, national news uh, outlets contacting us. Um, a couple of reporters that do the nightly news uh, wanted an interview with me. Um, and maybe more importantly, from my perspective, uh, everyone expected me to have the answers. And when I say everyone, I mean uh, clearly the, the detectives, uh, the people that were working the case on me from the prosecutor's side. Uh, the victim's families, the community, people that I knew growing up here uh, wanted to be assured that we had the right guy and that he was definitely Mm -hmm. going to be convicted. Uh, That's an awful lot uh, to put on a brand new prosecutor's shoulders and I definitely struggle with that. It's a lot of stress that goes along uh, with with that and um, you know I had a a lot of uh, uh, of my own obstacles at the time to overcome but to make a very long story relatively short Uh, After a couple of months of um, thinking about how difficult it was, I started thinking about the fact that the people who had lost their loved ones, uh, my difficulties paled in comparison. Hmm. Uh, I thought about the life-changing and truly uh, shocking um, loss that they had experienced. Um, And I realized how afraid uh, everyone in the community had been uh, when uh, severance was on the loose and I started reminding myself that it wasn't about me really uh, the case wasn't about me and the fact that I might be wallowing in some kind of self-pity or uh, you know yelling at the fates that that, that that conspired to put me in the position that that was just negative energy that was not going to help me do my job and instead I need to focus I needed to focus on doing right by the, the victims families I needed to do right by the victims themselves. I needed to do right by the many, many hours that the law enforcement um, uh, leaders that investigated the case put into the case, uh, and I needed to do my job. And Mm -hmm. so um, I I think that that uh, that case, in addition to being extremely grave and extremely difficult and very complex, probably the longest trial that we've had in Virginia in the past decade ended up being something like six weeks long. uh, It was also a personal journey for me. Uh, and one in which I think uh, I grew a lot, um, and maybe grew more into the role than I could have otherwise. So, obviously, Cody. I mean, I, I think about the case, and I got so many emotions right now as we talk about it, kind of just welling up inside of me. Uh, obviously, I, 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 you know, no one wants that kind of tragedy yeah, to occur in the city, but but if it had to, uh, it was my privilege um, to represent uh, the city and the victims, and I'd like to think I I did right by them. So uh, definitely a growing experience for me and one that I'll never forget.
0: How do you feel like that case specifically has sort of impacted the work that you've done kind of during the rest of your tenure as Commonwealth's attorney? Do you feel like it's changed the way you think about specific issues? Because I know something you've written about in our paper before, specifically about around issues concerning um, mental health and, and about... About firearms in Virginia, do you feel like that case impacted your thoughts on those issues at all, or were you already thinking about those kind of in the office as it was?
1: Well, I, I mean, it definitely impacted my thinking, and in fact, uh, that was one of the main reasons that I wrote the book. Um, if you you know if you read the book, I mean, obviously, I tell the story of what happened in the investigation and sure. in the, in the trial, but many purposes behind that book. But but one of the main ones is. Uh, really the afterward, if you will, like where I lay out many of my thoughts on the confluence of mental health and, and firearms. Uh, the case taught me an awful lot about that confluence. It taught me an awful lot about how as a society, uh, I think in America, we, we were very, very woefully unprepared for dealing with that interaction of mental health issues and firearms. Uh, I think there's always, uh, you know, there's this, this vibe that once something bad happens uh, the question is, well, why didn't law enforcement stop this from occurring? I, I, just recently we had a, a shooting, a person that exhibited many of the same mental health problems that Mr. Severance exhibited uh, shot uh, up a clinic in, uh, I, I believe it was like the Buffalo area if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. And he had been, um, there was a protective order between him and the persons uh, in, the, in the clinic that he ended up shooting. Definitely a recluse, very angry human being. And of course, the recriminations come out. And, you know, why couldn't law enforcement stop this? How could this possibly occur? And the answer is unfortunately, uh, law enforcement is usually a very reactionary uh, profession. Uh, the, somebody has to commit a criminal offense before they can intervene. And yeah. we don't, clearly, we don't want people to encourage the police to be the thought police and start, you know, prosecuting people or, or, or putting people in jail. Uh, because, um, you know, they, they've got some mental health conditions. So that's not to say law enforcement doesn't have a role, uh, but you got to look at someone like Severance. Severance suffered from very many uh, personality disorders. Um, at trial, he had an expert who diagnosed him with at least three, uh, antisocial, uh, uh, paranoid, and then schizotypal, which basically means that just, you know, there was no other... Real definition or real diagnosis that fit, mm-hmm. but the thing about um, uh, I, I think most lay people, Cody, when they think about someone who's quote unquote crazy, which of course is a a word we don't want to use, but if, if if you if you were to ask lay people, they're they're thinking about like son of Sam, like a yeah. guy getting voices in his head from a dog and b- you know babbling to himself in the corner. That's not what happened in the Severance case. Charles Severance was a very unusual human being. Uh, he was very, very, very intelligent. Uh, he graduated from UVA with a degree in engineering. He was not schizophrenic. Uh, there was no evidence that he hallucinated or had uh, 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 you know, concrete delusions. I think he mm-hmm. had some, uh, some ideas that, w- that could be delusional. But, but what I'm saying here is uh, he was smart enough if somebody, if a doctor had talked to Charles Severance and said, hey, Charles, are you thinking about murdering people? Uh, he clearly would have had the self-control to, be, to, to, to say, absolutely not. I'm not mm-hmm. thinking about that. And if someone doesn't express homicidal ideations uh, and the people that are closest to them discount what he's saying, because he did talk about murdering people uh, to his girlfriend and to other people that um, were close to him, uh, there's really very little that our current paradigm can do to intervene. And we're slowly changing that. I mean, we now have the red flag laws that have gone into effect, and, and we've used that a couple of times, twice, I think, in the past year here in Alexandria. Uh, but I guess what I'm saying is, is that I think we as a society have to be more willing to understand that the vast majority of people that encounter mental health problems would never hurt anyone, mm-hmm. and they should not be treated with scorn or derision or have a stigma attached with, to them. Instead, we should treat it like any other uh, physical ailment. Uh, if someone has cancer, we don't stigmatize them, we treat them. If someone has a mental illness, we shouldn't stigmatize them, we should treat them. But particularly personality disorders, which are very hard to treat uh, and which uh, are frequently encountered in people that engage in these mass uh, uh, acts of violence. I'll give you an example. The Unabomber, very similar in ideation to Charles Severance. Uh, that's one good example. Um, hmm. The guy that uh, in Aurora, Jamie Holmes, that shot up the, uh, the movie theater. If you look at the writings that he left uh, that the police recovered, I've looked at them online, it, almost like reading stuff that Charles Severance wrote. Hmm. Uh, I, I just think we have to do a better job of robustly funding mental health um, uh, uh, systems and trying to understand that while the numbers are thankfully very, very small, there are people out there uh, that intend on doing harm, and we've got to do a better job of trying to identify them and intervene before they actually hurt people.
0: I think that the flip side of this conversation about mental health is not only the mental health of the perhaps the person who committed the act, but how these cases then in turn impact the mental health of the people who are investigating them. And so I'm sort of curious, what, how, how does sort of, being involved in these types of investigations impact you as someone who does, who has to go to the scene, has to see these things, and then has to kind of pour over evidence. Do those, I have to imagine those things stick with you in some way.
1: Well, they definitely do. Um, And it's, it's interesting. We we talked earlier about how uh, my profession has evolved and changed, and we're having conversations now about uh, things that we didn't normally used to have conversations about, but Uh, One of that one of those topics is uh, wellness, wellness for prosecutors, wellness for police investigators. And, you know, I look back over my career. I've seen an awful lot of stuff firsthand uh, that most people thankfully don't have to encounter. I mean, I've gone to very many uh, crime scenes. Uh, I've seen uh, human beings, uh, you know, in in really just very, very terrible situations that probably don't even need to be described in detail Mm -hmm. here. Uh, And so that does take a toll on you right it's something they don't really teach you in law school uh, the stress that can be associated with a career uh, as a trial lawyer and um, you know I I remember the very first time that I went to a scene and saw a dead body Uh, you know I'll never forget that it kept me awake for a week even though it wasn't a particularly it wasn't a homicide it was a Mm -hmm. I think it was a suicide Uh, so you 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 do take a little piece of that with you and for a long time in our profession uh, the idea was kind of like law enforcement. It was, hey, don't whine about that. That shows that you're not tough enough for the job. I don't want to hear about trauma. I don't want to hear about vicarious trauma. Um, and if you'd asked me 15 years ago, that probably would have been my uh, position. You know, mm-hmm. it's my job is to put these things on, you know, deal with them. I'm not going to complain about it. Uh, as I've gotten older and hopefully a little bit wiser, uh, I do understand the impact that can have on my employees. Uh, and it's not just seeing death and destruction and, and, you know, gory photographs or going to crime scenes and seeing decomposing bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's stuff like, um, you know, homicide's a great example, Cody. Uh, again, something that's not really portrayed on the television or in the movies is the, 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 the relationship that exists between prosecutors and the victim's family in a homicide uh... now it's unusual in the severance case uh, although i did not know them well i had met both nancy dunning uh... is a very young person and then uh, ruth Ann. I, I knew both of them at one point in my life uh... but in most cases i don't get to meet the victim right mm-hmm. the victim is already passed away by the time i'm getting involved in the case um, but i do get to know the family and of course uh... the family uh, to some extent you know uh... I, I'm the person that can try uh, to bring them some modicum of solace in a really very difficult situation, right? And uh, there's a lot that goes into those relationships. I've seen i've I've had families who were pretty distant, who did not really want to be involved too much in the prosecution. I've had people who were extremely angry and vented their anger toward me. Uh, I've had people that were extremely sad and who, um, you know, very difficult conversations. And you can't have conversations with people in which you're discussing the loss of a close loved one or family member uh, and have them sobbing uncontrollably uh, in front of you uh, without that affecting you as well, Sure. right? And and then finally, another, another class of cases that can really cause problems in my profession are, are, are cases that involve child sexual abuse. Hmm. Uh, the prosecutors that have to deal with children who have been abused um, uh, uh, can really be impacted by that. I consider that a burnout assignment in my office. Uh, We try very to monitor closely the caseloads and how long people have been put into that assignment, because I don't think it's something that you can do for 25 years without becoming um, really impacted in a negative way. So how do we do that? Well, uh, instead of telling prosecutors, I don't want to hear about that, it's your job, toughen up, uh, which definitely would have been the vibe a couple of decades ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't say that. Uh, I, I have my supervisors instead uh, try to be empathetic and to be caring and to inquire about the, the mental health of uh, the people who have to deal with so many of these difficult things. Uh, we do training. Um, we're actually uh, planning on having a, a whole month dedicated to wellness in May. Uh, I don't want really good lawyers uh, to get burned out and leave this profession because they just can't deal with the stress anymore. Uh, and it's—I uh, will be honest, Cody. There have been very, very many sleepless nights in my career. Uh, it's just—it just—it just, it's just, just kind of goes hand in hand with what we're doing here. Uh, I'd like to think that um, you know, prosecuting a, a a murder case is almost a sacred obligation. That's what I tell my people. Uh, not only is it a crime against the victim. Uh, who cannot speak for him or herself any longer. It's a crime against the family, the friends, everyone that knew the person that has been killed. Uh, I also think it's a crime against society. Uh, I think that every human society has defined murder as being naturally wrong or evil. Now, of course, I have to concede that human societies have a way of defining murder in a way that allows for certain amounts of killing, right? Sure. I mean, uh, that, that 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 that's obvious. And those definitions have fluctuated over the years, but there's always a core feeling that certain types of a human being killing another human being is just naturally evil and wrong. And so to some extent, uh, you have to balance that stress and the difficult things and the sleepless nights that go along with, uh, with being a prosecutor with the nobility uh, involved in being a voice for, for someone who has been unlawfully killed for being a voice for the community, uh, for understanding that if people could kill each other with impunity, uh, that this whole uh, system of uh, civilization would quickly fall apart. And so that's what you do. You, 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 put, you put emphasis on it. You train people to be on the alert. Uh, you show as a, as a superior, as a, as a supervisor, that you have real concern for people. Uh, and then you try to find nobility in the good parts of your job.
0: The Alexandria Times encourages all residents to get the COVID-19 vaccine when available. Visit the City of Alexandria website at www.alexandriava.gov to pre-register for the vaccine waitlist. For more information, visit the Virginia Department of Health website, www.vdh.virginia.gov, for updated information on phases for the state of Virginia. Protect yourself and your community. Give it a shot. Through all the cases you've seen, the Charles Severance cases, type cases, the homicide cases, even some of the the more I guess you'd consider them quote unquote minor cases that you've dealt with, as much as you can say that about anything, has has your had do you feel like your faith in the power of the law and the veracity of the law, have you felt like that has stayed tried and true throughout your career? Has your faith in that like core essential quality of what you're doing in your job ever been shaken through any of these cases?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting question. I, I don't think my faith has been shaken. Um, okay. I, I think I think well, it's very easy in this job to have your faith shaken in humanity, right? Sure. Because because yeah. what what we're what we're dealing with is just really really negative stuff. If 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 it's a felony case that's coming before our office. Uh, someone has done something pretty bad, probably, right? And so, um, you know, it can be. Uh, I think it's. Uh, you know, I remember the movie uh, "No Country for Old Men," which one of the themes there was that you've got law enforcement uh, officers who basically are thinking, "Have we ever made any difference whatsoever?" I mean, just you yeah, know, just keeps keeps on happening over and over again. And the reality of it is, is human beings are imperfect creatures, and, uh, you know, there is never going to be, I don't believe, even a thousand years from now, a society where there are no crimes being committed. Um, On the other hand, uh, there has to be a system for dealing with criminal activity, uh, because if there weren't, people would just resort to self-help, and we'd be pretty back to a state of chaos, uh, pretty quickly back to a state of chaos, right? So I, I think what is important for people in roles like mine is to understand that just because the system evolved a certain way or because we've done something the same way for a long period of time uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's correct uh, when i started for instance um, we would routinely ask for cash bail there really was no rhyme or reason to it uh, i don't know where i pulled the numbers out no one gave me any training on how to think about uh, the appropriate level of bail to ask for somebody in, a, in, in mm-hmm. an offense um, and so, you know, five or six years ago, uh, I remember hearing, uh, reading about how that's an issue. And, you know, it made sense to me. And so I had to reevaluate re-evalu- what we were doing and, and make sure that um, we were, were bringing the best possible policies to bear on that very that very tricky situation without just simply saying that's the way we've always done it. Sure. And it's also funny, Cody, just, you know, like when I was a young lawyer, I remember thinking that the jury system was kind of crazy. I mean, you know, you, you're getting 12 people off the street that know nothing about what we're doing, know nothing about criminal investigations, and then asking them to deliberate, sometimes on very serious matters. Uh, and it just seemed very odd to me when I would think through it logically. But, but my career has, maybe counterintuitively, i uh, taught me that there's some logic to the system. I don't know if that's luck or if the people mm-hmm. that came up with this many years ago uh, knew what they were doing. But in most circumstances, can't say all, but in most circumstances, uh, I can understand why a jury reaches the conclusion that they reach. And in most circumstances, it's pretty close to what I think the right outcome could be at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, if, if if we can have a conviction, if we get a conviction in a jury trial in which 12 different individuals. Uh, are able to reach a consensus that the, the case has been proven. Uh, I, look, we're still human beings. There's still errors in the system. I'm not by any shape sure. or form saying that it's perfect. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty high bar for us to get over. And so um, I think my, my experience um, has not really had me lose faith in the system or even lose faith in humanity. Uh, to the contrary, uh, it might have been like an inverse, a parabola, if yeah. you will. I mean, there might've been a point where it went down, but as time has progressed, um, to, to the contrary, I think my faith in humanity and in society has uh, frequently been reinforced.
0: Now, I know, obviously you mentioned before that you you did have an interest in, and obviously a little bit of experience in politics. You said you you worked in the General Assembly for a little bit as, a, as an aide. And this is something you've written about in our paper at length, uh sort of kind of what's ha- happening at the state level this year has been a, a an unusual one in a lot of ways i feel like so many people have been focused on the pandemic so many that that to the detriment of kind of understanding some of the actual concrete change that has happened at the state level in terms of new legislation being passed and we're not going to go into all of it in depth here obviously there, there was significant change ch- legislation passed in in this past year in terms of uh, police reform and then changes to courtroom procedure. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about to the listeners out there, I guess, what are some of the changes that have been made in the last year in terms of the law and legislation that people might not be aware of, but will likely be pretty important kind of moving forward?
1: Sure, well, I mean, obviously you're right. We don't we don't have time to, to go into even do more than just kind of like a brief yeah. foray into that into that world because there's been a lot of change um but there are several things that come to mind uh one's relatively straightforward and simple uh it, it, the death penalty appears to be abolished in virginia uh, that is a significant change uh, for, for a sure. long uh, virginia used to be on the forefront of executions um, and it would be the first southern state to completely abandon the practice uh, I have, uh, for a long time, been supportive of, uh, of that effort. Um, I've, I've charged capital cases, like the severance case, but mm-hmm. I've immediately waived seeking the death penalty uh, because of the frailties of, human, of humanity, um, and I, I just don't think it's the right call. Uh, so in any event, that's one big one, but that's kind of simple. There's not a lot of analysis there, things that people might not be as um, aware of. Uh, from our standpoint, uh, a big change is that uh, Virginia has uh, eliminated uh, jury sentencing. Mm-hmm. So for a very for, for as long as I've been a, a lawyer, uh, Virginia has had a what they call a bifurcated system in which a jury in any criminal case would hear evidence about guilt or innocence. And then if they did convict on any criminal offense, uh, then there would be a second hearing in which evidence, both uh, aggravating and mitigating evidence, would be introduced and the jury would be asked to recommend a sentence. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just a recommendation. The judge could not go above the recommendation but could go below it. Uh, But there were a lot of aspects of that system that really, to be quite honest, weren't fair. Um, uh, The jury didn't get the same options that a judge gets. They weren't given the same level of information. Uh, And they were just given some very rough parameters and asked to kind of work it out. Uh, so um, Virginia was a, was definitely a minority of states. I think there was something like three or four states that did it. The federal hmm. system uh, does not have jury sentencing. Uh, 46 other states did not have jury sentencing. Uh, Virginia dropped jury sentencing, um, and that went into effect March 1st. There's no longer going to be jury sentencing. Instead, the jury will just determine guilt or innocence. And that should impact our office. Between that change and the backlog, uh, because we haven't been able to do a lot of juries due to COVID, yeah. Uh, I think we're going to have a busy 12 to 18 months in my office. Sure. Uh, so that's a big change. Uh, marijuana legalization, um, that uh, passed but is going into, it's a delayed effect thing, Be going into effect in mm-hmm. 2024 so that there's some time to work out the details. Uh, that's a huge change uh, that's occurred in a, in a very uh, brief period of time. Uh, and then there's some stuff that really is more focused on uh, uh, police, uh, so, for instance, uh, there's a, there's definitely been a movement to try to discourage the police from uh, engaging in lower-level traffic encounters with citizens. To be honest, if that's dealt with uh, openly and frankly, I, I think you get a lot of buy-in from law enforcement for that as well. They could focus on the more serious stuff. But a, a great example of that, several things went into effect, but a great example of that is uh, as of March 1st, uh, people get a grace period for expired license plates and expired uh inspection stickers
0: Mm -hmm.
1: i think many people kind of thought there already was one yeah uh, but there was no grace period in virginia if if, if your license plate expired on january 31st uh, the police could pull you over and give you a ticket at 1202 a.m on february 1st Um, that's the way it was up until march 1st now you've got a 90 day uh grace period to get your license plates fixed want to point out you can still get parking tickets, all right, and, you can, and if, if you get pulled over for another offense, like running a red light, and your license plates are expired, the police can still give you a ticket, but they cannot initiate a traffic stop for, for, for expired tags or expired inspection stickers, and that goes to your point earlier on about things changing. It's, it's, it's designed to decrease the frequency of police-citizen contacts for, for relatively minor offenses.
0: Brian the the way we sort of conclude these these episodes are we like to connect conversation to conversation by sort of having the last guest pose a question to the next guest not knowing who they were and so the last guest we had Robin Hamilton documentary filmmaker obviously very different very different profession than yourself and, and so her her conversation was very different i encourage people to go back and listen to that but her question for you not knowing who you were was what is your favorite sound? And that is a very broad and general question, sort of a very, like, perhaps existential philosophical question. But I, I, I don't know if you, you actually have an answer for this. Well, I, that's that is that's
1: kind of like, uh, that's you know, I feel like my answer might reveal a lot about my personality, yeah. Um, right. but you know, something does come to mind, Cody. So, um, uh, I happen. Uh, even though I'm kind of old now, I, I I play guitar, and I'm in a band with uh, some other people in my profession. Uh, mm. Another another elected CA and a, a police chief from another jurisdiction. And anyway, we, we were we were actually practicing uh, this past weekend with the hopes that if COVID continues to get better, we might be able to actually play out somewhere yeah. uh, this summer. So uh, we were practicing COVID safe, of course, masks and and, and socially distant, but. Um, the, the sound that comes to mind is, uh, I've got, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about when I was playing this Saturday, we had a tube amp there, I play guitar, you, you plug the amp in, or you plug the guitar into the amp, you turn the tube amp on to standby, and then you flip the power switch on, and you get, the, you get the, that initial crackle, yeah. and the hum of the tube amp right before you start playing uh, cause I really, I really enjoy that. And, uh, I, I, I've, it's always been like, just, I know something cool is about to happen. We're going to start playing and I, I look forward to it. So it's that hum of a tube amp is one of my happy places. If you want to put it that way. I love that. What's the name of your band? Uh, it's old Bailey and the bondsman. Um, okay. and, uh, we are uh, not, not surprisingly given uh, the era in which we grew up. Uh, we cover 90s rock music so it's like uh, you know stone temple pilots that kind of stuff uh, and it's i'm i'm lucky to play with some people that are really really very much better musicians than me but but um they've really helped me up my game a little bit
0: amazing yeah no i as as a as a musician myself and a guitarist myself Oh, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I play guitar. And so I can I understand the appeal of that sound. It, it brings back a lot of, just for me, it brings back a lot of memories playing in my friend's basement with with our terrible high school band. Um, yeah, no, it, it's definitely a very evocative sound. So great answer. Um, what is the question you'd like to ask the next guest, not knowing who they are? Well, you know, I think I'm going to stick uh, kind of with the music
1: theme. So the, the, the question is, I think everyone at some point in their in their lives played a uh, an instrument. So I think the question would be for the next guest uh, what musical instrument uh, have you ha- are you good at? What musical instrument have you played in the past? And I think as a follow-up for how long did you play it? All right? Okay. I mean, you know, I, I play guitar for 30 years now, but there are some people that have, you know, played one, you know, play the uh, the recorder or something for a year or two yeah. as a kid. Uh, but I think it's interesting. And I, I think music's a really, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I think music's really important. And I, I, I wish more people would, you know, even if they were just kind of fooling around with a piano or something in the basement, for me, it's a real stress reliever, going back to wellness and, 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 and uh, you know, trying to take care of yourself and finding things that you can kind of release some stress. So I, I'd be interested in watching your next uh, segment and seeing if you can catch somebody unawares with that and, and see what their answer is. Thank you so much for uh, sitting down and talking with me, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Cody. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, this is a great series that you're doing here. I, I look forward to listening to uh, future uh, segments on it. And um, obviously, I'm, I'm here. If I can ever be of assistance, all I got to do is reach out and let me know how I can help,
0: okay? Definitely. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Alexandria. Take it easy.